Welcome, welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, along with my co-host, Pat Gallagher, and our special guest in Mady Olivu. And hopefully I got that right. Um, but Mady has had a tremendous career in sports and in the law uh, realm of, of the sports industry. And if we started to list off her accomplishments, we'd be on here for 30 minutes. But we will be on here for 30 minutes. But, but, but uh, Pat will kind of introduce her. Uh, and we'll, we'll go through her career path and um, what we can learn from her in, in the legal world. And obviously, it's more apparent than, than ever uh, now. So, uh, Mady, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jake. I appreciate it. And thank you, Pat. I'm looking forward to this. So, Mady and I met actually uh, I, I, about 20, I guess about 23 years ago. Now, she's been doing this a long time. She's, you know, one of the one of the most respected uh, legal minds in the sports and entertainment. Um, a lot of uh, not only with brands, but governing bodies with teams. We first met when uh, we were kind of sitting across the table from each other. And we had other others there, too, when we were negotiating the uh, new ballpark naming rights deal in San Francisco which, you know, maybe at the time we were negotiating a 20-year deal for Pacific Bell Park. Now, at the time, none of us really knew that that name was going to change like four times over the 20 years. But um, And it changed within a matter of, yeah. I don't know, a year after the park opened. Yeah, it did. Yeah. yeah. And I think, we, I think we addressed that in the agreement, but probably, you know, not satisfactorily. But anyway... Um, it, but that was one of the deals. I hope you, hopefully you'll look back on that one fondly. But, uh, you know, at the end, when it's all done, uh, we can kind of, you know, uh, chalk it up to a good experience. Um, I remember I sent you a Giants jersey with your name on it. I hope you still have it. Oh, my God. I have it on my wall in my office. It's, <laughs> it's framed. <laughs> this you know, guy, one of, my, <laughs> one of my friends got a hold of it, and he's like, you have to frame this. And he went and had it framed. See, and then I have my, uh, my ticket there for the first game that I attended in the park. That was great. So that was I, when I sent you the note to inviting you to do it. It was, just, it was just 20 years ago that the ballpark opened. Hard to believe. Um, oh, yeah, that is hard to believe. And we started before it opened. We did. And, you know, doing we and we can get into this doing naming rights 20, you know, 23 years ago is sort of a much different exercise uh, than it is today. Obviously, the dollars are much different. But um, but but maybe let's let's talk. I mean, you you know, aside from the stuff you you've accomplished so far, I mean, you're a you know, I'm not sure if this was always in your blood. You went to you went to Georgetown, uh, both as an undergrad and Georgetown Law. You've been involved in the Olympics. I know also you've been involved in uh, Special Olympics and with big brands. But how, it, tell us a little bit about your path. How did you get started? I mean, did you always say, I want to be a sports lawyer? Is that kind of what you always thought? Okay, that's, that's very funny because so – I'll start at the beginning. It's completely random. What I, I was raised in France. I went to French schools. And so when I graduated from law school, I wanted to do international business transactions. I had a, I had a job in Amsterdam, a classic job that you have a one-year clerkship after law school. And then I came back and I was 
It was an era where women were not particularly welcome as lawyers. My law school graduating class was 16% female. Mm. The year after that, it was 32% female. And I was struggling to find a job in international business transactions in Washington, D.C. And long story short, one of my friends introduced me to this law firm that represented professional tennis players and then later professional basketball players, including Michael Jordan. And um, they had a slot for a woman. And (laughs) they hired me. And when I told my mom that I was working at a law firm representing professional athletes and doing sports work, she's like, is your office in a gym? (laughs) (laughs) You know, there was no such thing as sports lawyers. That's why I'm laughing because it didn't exist. The, The first time that somebody that I used to avoid saying what I did. Because, you know, who do you know? All that stuff would come up. But but then um, after the 1984 Olympic Games, I was on a plane and the guy next to me asked me what I did. And I said, I work in sports sponsorships at that point. It was it was easier to say, you know, I wasn't going to get all the questions. And he's like, oh, I know what that is. I know the Los Angeles Olympic Games there. Coke was a sponsor, you know. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the first time somebody's actually recognized that this is a real <laughs> job. And that was five years later, actually six. So, no, there was no such thing as an ambition to be a sports lawyer when I started out. I wanted to do international business transactions. And when they gave me the offer, I was like, well, tennis players are international business. That wasn't what I was thinking but this qualifies. And really shortly thereafter, the, um, one of the firm's clients was Adidas, Horst Dossler, who you may know mm-hmm. of at least. And he had purchased cash on the barrel, the signage and sponsorship rights for the World Cup of Soccer and for the UEFA events leading up to the World Cup of Soccer. So he had cornered the market, and he was packaging those and selling them. And he went to the partner at my firm and said, I need somebody to help on this. And the partner at my firm was like, okay, well, Mady's international. So here I had been slotted in this, you know, doing corporate work and estate planning for the athletes, And now I'm sent off to London to work on these sponsorship contracts for a package that was newly developed and had, I mean, no such thing had existed. No such thing had existed. So it was pretty exciting. The guy who uh, later, Michael Payne, he became the marketing director at the IOC. He was my main sort of work-a-day client. And he and I developed this agreement using various other agreements and the concepts that we had. And so that was my first sort of creative bit of work. And um, what got me kind of to be a sponsorship person and um, also international. But you've been on, you've been on the sponsorship. You've been on both sides of the table. I mean, you've represented the buyers and the sellers, right? 
I have, yes. In in the um, Pack Bell Park transaction, I was representing the buyer. Um, I represented MasterCard on their World Cup sponsorship. And obviously, when I was working on the other side of the World Cup sponsorship, I was representing the agency slash the World Cup. And I mean, it was a package, so it wasn't just one company. But yeah, I've been on on both sides on almost all the work that I do, like in television. So my career has basically, I've not been on the labor side very much other than at the beginning. I've basically been on the revenue side. So sponsorships, television, that kind of thing, but not ticket sales or um, athlete deals so much anymore. Mm -hmm. And yeah, wherever I've been on both sides of, all of those revenue type transactions. Yes. I've read. Katie, as, as you talk, as you talk about how sports law has evolved, right. You, you know, you mentioned that it didn't, it wasn't really a thing when you started and uh, now it's, it's become a big thing and there's, you know, the sports law association there, you know, what you're on the, the board of directors mm-hmm. for, and there's all sorts of different um, aspects to the sports law industry. And if someone, you know, went up to you and said, I want to work in sports law, which now seems like a very general, you know, phrase. Um, can you kind of give a really high level overview of, of what that entails and what the different aspects of the industry um, are in, in terms of the line of work? So that's, yeah. So that's a question that I get all the time. And um, I speak to law students and they want to know sort of what's the path, but I'll just start at, at the bad news and then answer it better. So the dean of Georgetown Law School looked at his list of graduates and figured out that he had a whole bunch of senior people in sports. So he went around and talked to all of us to try to learn what is the path? How do my law students get into sports law? And by the time he got to me, he was completely deflated. He's like, there is no path. I cannot figure this out. No, it's been really, none of you have followed the same route. So that's the first thing. Now, there are lots and lots of sports law programs. So kids are somewhat, or I shouldn't say kids, but students are steered into it and they get knowledge much more I mean none of this existed there were no sports law case books or anything when I was starting out which by the way was the fun part of it Um, and what I tell them is you have to think beyond the sort of image that everyone has so so I'll go to a party And I'll say that somebody will ask me what I do. And I'll say, I'm a lawyer. I work in the sports industry. I do not represent athletes. I work on the revenue side. You know, the stuff I just said. Okay, so I'll talk to this person. And and within five minutes of talking, that person will say to me, so which athletes do you represent? (laughs) I'm like, oh, my God, I can't get away from this. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) And that's what happens when, when people are studying law or, frankly, in sports management programs, everybody leans to the sort of most, what seems the most obvious. So I try to encourage broadening that thinking. 
I try to point out to the law students, look at all of the things that I have worked on. And they're so very different from an athlete, a team, a league. Tennis, tennis has events, has individual athletes, the Los Angeles Olympic Games, um, Pac Bell, MasterCard. I currently represent Intel. I represent the Sugar Bowl. They've been a longstanding client. I represented the purchaser of the BNP Paribas Tennis Open. You know, none of those people are, quote, sports, unquote. You don't think, oh, I'm going to work in sports at Intel. You just don't think that. But if, you, if you're really interested in working in sports, you need to go beyond teams, leagues, and athletes. You've got to realize the industry is much, much wider than that. That's, oh, and the final thing that I say to them is, if you have the flexibility and you are willing, I recommend an organizing committee. They are hiring machines. Right now, we have coming up in the United States, the FIFA World Cup of Soccer in 2026 and the Olympic Games in Los Angeles in 28. Those are great organizations. That, that is how I made my name, basically, was working for the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee for a year and a half. So, so Mady, how do you? Yeah, let, let's let's get to something a little more, maybe a little more granular here. Is it how do you establish if you're a if you're a property or if you're a a brand? How do you establish value? And um, what I mean by that is when somebody says everybody wants to know the numbers. You know, when we did our we did our our Pacific Bell Park naming rights deal, and you know, 23 years ago, it was sort of at the top of the market. It was it was like 50 million 50 million dollars spread out over a period of time and it reportedly reportedly yes it was it actually wound up being a lot more than that with the different changes but 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 how do you establish i mean how do you establish value i'll just give that as an open-ended question and see how you answer it well i can cheat on my answer and say you know i'm a lawyer i'm not the one establishing (laughs) see that's a lawyer that's a total lawyer response (laughs) but 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 for a long time when um the name rights was still in its infancy. So, so just to, to point this out, and Pat, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the Pat Bell deal, the naming rights deal, was the first venue deal in the United States. There had been Bush Park, but that was named, it had, there was some other ownership related reason for that name. It wasn't actually an arm's length transaction. Mm-hmm. So you guys didn't really have anything to base your pricing on. No, we didn't. We, you know, what we did is we sort of pulled a number out of the air. And since we privately financed the, uh, <laughs> which is a good way to do it sometimes. Uh, we, is, yeah, it, it was we, all you had. It was all we had. Be- no data and analytics. Well, no, there was not. No so that was, was in a, the days of big data. We, yeah. yeah, it was a privately financed <laughs> deal. And so it was kind of like, in a way, the simple way to look at it was kind of like buying like buying a house, we had to come up with a down payment, which means we had to secure this term that I learned it was driven into me called contractually contractually obligated income, income, COI. And so we had to, that was like our down payment. And then to go to the banks or a consortium of lenders after that to have them kind of say, yeah, okay, 
we understand. We, okay, we'll, we'll finance this. Obviously, a lot of hoops that everybody had to jump through in a lot of things, you know, like letters of credit and other things, which I didn't, you know, I'm not a financial guy. Um, I was just trying to get the, you know, get the best deal that we could. And so, but it, it was, the value for us was, it's sort of what we had, to, what we, we thought we needed to get. And there's so many, there's so much, so much of a, a better way to arrive at that now. I mean, I, I think back on it and literally we just sort of pulled a number out of the air and said, well, if we could get this much by, and, and, and you know, there were not a lot of comps at that point. I mean, I, I used to like to point out that the first naming rights deal was, um, was Wrigley Field in chicago because yeah you know, but that's nope. another corporate one that's a corporate but one but i know but people don't think of it they sold a lot of chewing gum with that name but people but don't think family. of it it was Sorry, a family but they don't i met family I well met family. it was but they don't people you know i i remember the number of people you know they kind of recoil sometimes at the names that you put on these things why don't you do something really classic like somebody said this why don't you do something that's really baseball, like Wrigley Field? And I said, well, that was the first naming rights deal. <laughs> and, anyway, uh, but, and, but and, and go ahead. Yeah, so what I was going to say is after yours and after there was a pattern, I basically started tracking it. And it turned out, and this is actually really interesting, that 80% of the value in naming rights is with a local company. So 80% of the deals that are done for naming rights are done with a local company because it's perceived primarily by the, the purchasing company as a community relations deal, not right. a commercial deal the way we think of it. You know, it's not advertising. A lot of people are a little bit confused about naming rights. So... Yeah. Well, because there's there's a lot that goes into it outside of just your name on the building. Right? Well, there, there's a lot of pride. That, I mean, if you're if you're in the Bay Area, you, you know, and you're you're looking for a potential naming rights partner, you know, you look to the you sort of look to sort of the big guys. Who are the who are the companies that people would say, well, yeah, they're big enough to do something like that. And the list, you know, the list gets small pretty fast. But it it but Mady's right. It's it's people look at this as a is something that they're doing. Yes, they can justify it with all kinds of numbers and metrics and all that stuff. But the reason that they really do it is to be a real good citizen in the in the community. I mean, Pacific Telesis went from being the phone company to all of a sudden the company that actually helped bring the ballpark. And I remember when we changed the name the first time, a lot of people saying, God, I've fallen in love with, with Pac Bell Park. And I'm thinking, how in the hell did we get people to fall in love with the name of the phone company? Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So, so I, I, um, after that deal, I did a few others, like actually not just for sports venues, but for shopping malls and things like that. And one of the other elements that's a big part of the value and you just flagged it, Pat, and that is the initial name because it, there's a, supporting the community there's an adoption there's you don't have to like go from pack bell park to southwestern bell park to at&t park to oracle park you know right. you're you, you don't have to change anything it starts out as that and somehow the marriage is much stronger when it's the initial name so that that's another big thing i mean think about 
Oh God, now I can't remember. Farmers Field, I think it is here in Los Angeles. That company paid nothing to be associated with a venue that was not built, but they got the positive community relations value and what I call the Wall Street play. It brings the company up into a much higher level of sort of the the understanding by the public of that company as a real player we would say nowadays you know mm-hmm. it brings it way up and could have an effect on their stock value which it has historically had an effect on stock values of companies sometimes to the detriment but anyway um farmer's field was was just a an idea it was a field that was going to be built that was never built but they got all that value sold by Tim Lewicki um, here in LA when he was at <laughs> yeah. AEG. But, but yeah, there's the value is really in those two things. Now, internally, companies have to justify it. Some companies, PacBell did this, and most companies do do this. They go to their internal departments and they say, okay, here's what we're paying. You, you have to put, you know, 25% of it in your budget, figure out how to justify it. And so then there are the hospitality um, benefits, the tickets, the signage, any sampling, other things that people can do by virtue of their sponsorship association within the venue. But it, it is the decision is made primarily on a community relations basis. And it should, you know, it sh- I guess it should be that way. I mean, you know, you look, we, we can come up with all kinds of metrics, how many impressions and all that stuff, which should, it'd make your head spin. But that's, it, people get emotional about this. They get emotional about their teams. I think now, if you look back, you know, if Pacific Telesis kind of looks back and, you know, that's sort of a long time in the rearview mirror uh, of the 20 some years. But, you know, the Giants established that as a, as, a, as a real sort of icon, a lot of world championships, others. So you'd kind of say, well, did they get a good value for that? And I would say, since I'm a seller, I'd say, sure, they got, we, we didn't charge them enough. But, no, I, um, I, I agree. I absolutely agree. Because the Staples Center, um, which if I don't know if you ever looked at their original proposal, because I actually looked at it on behalf of Pac Bell. They were trying to sell it as a venue within a named complex. So it would have been, let's say, uh, the Pac Bell Center or, or uh, yeah, let's call it the Pac Bell Center within the Staples, like what's called now LA Live, within the Staples shopping area or whatever. It, I can't remember how they were denominating it at the time. And everybody who looked at it was like, uh, no, (laughs) not going to do that. Um, But Staples paid, I don't know, let's say a lot more than Pac Bell paid. But they had the the Democratic National Convention and Bruce Springsteen opening and you know, all kinds of stuff that they piled on at the beginning. And P.S., they, they did have and do have three, you know, major league teams playing in there. Well, sure. Yeah. But anyway, um, but yeah, the, the 
the numbers are totally logical when you map it out, which I have done. Yes. But they're mm-hmm. all individual, all individual. Yeah. Well, maybe you, you, you talk about, you talk about the numbers and kind of the attention to details and, you know, Pat was kind of talking about the, you know, the value and, and there's obviously a lot of things. It's almost as if you're in sports law or you know a lawyer in general, you have to have more knowledge than anyone at the table. Right. And, and, uh, obviously there's the, the obvious skill sets, right. Of, of being able to read certain, um, phrases or, or language, et cetera. But what are some of like, what are the one or two things that stand out that you've been able to acquire, whether it's a skill set or experience that's really helped you in your career that a young, you know, lawyer or a young sports lawyer might not, might not think about or might not know, uh, at the beginning. Oh God, there's so many. So, that actually, I want to just make one comment before we get off the Bell Park thing, and I am going to use it here. It, Pat, it, it, I do have fond memories of it, and it was fun to deal with the Giants. Um, but, and, and it's, a little, it's a little hard for a young lawyer to do what I'm going to describe here because you have to start somewhere. But I had a client in Pac Bell that was converting from a regulated industry to becoming sort of marketing driven. They were literally on the cusp. They knew they were going to have to become a marketing company, but they didn't know how. I had at that point worked in the sports industry for over 25 years, I was very familiar with the tools that the sports industry provided, with the negotiation strategies that people like the Giants would use, and with what Pac Bell could get out of it long term. Now, can you say to a young lawyer, you need to know all that? No. But if a young lawyer knew nothing and sat in that room and listened to their client, they would have understood a lot which was that this transaction was the first one of its kind. Nobody knew, nobody knew exactly how to structure it. The Giants law firm looked at me with sports industry experience and said, would you mind drafting the first draft? (laughs) Because, Because they didn't even know where to start or how to begin. So, And normally the seller does not do that. I mean, when my clients are sellers, I'm like, no, 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 we are drafting this. (laughs) And we're going to have it ready when they say yes. So, but, but what, what a young lawyer can do is be as prepared as possible. Look at the documents that have been exchanged, which there were quite a few at that point. They had been on, on the marketing level and one could see very easily that there was a lot of room for definition and um, force the client to be rigorous, which is not an easy thing to do, but an important thing to do. I mean, I, <laughs> I said to Pac Bell, okay, you're going to have an exclusive. It says right here in these documents you've exchanged that you're going to have exclusivity in your product category. What is it? And the president of that division looks at me and he goes, it's a dial tone. <laughs> I said to him, no, not good enough. 
So I look at yeah. the in-house lawyer. I'm like, you have to go around inside this company and get me a definition. You have singular wireless, which now is AT&T wireless or whatever it's called. And um, you, you have to get me more than that. You guys have investments in other things, et cetera. So he starts working on it and I get back six pages of a category definition ultimately, which I'm sure gave Pat and his colleagues a big fat headache. But, yeah, oh my God. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing. And you, you, the young lawyer here, can only do that if you're closely paying attention, not panicking, having trust and confidence in what you can bring to this. Because what marketing people do, no offense, Pat, is they will say, oh, no, 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 we know, we have, we have understood each other. We are very clear on how this is going to work. We know what we're doing. And then you say to those marketing people, okay, so dominant signage. Tell me what that means. Well, it means dominant signage. No, no, no. It means you, it means you can see it. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> if, if the lawyer is listening to what's being said, the lawyer can easily identify what needs to be defined. Yeah. And, and, you know, this brings back some, some vivid memories. I remember we argued over a, a term prominent and dominant. <laughs> what the hell does that mean? Prominent and dominant. Somebody you know, wrote I, it. I don't know. And I remember. Word well, choice, Pat. Well, Word somebody choice. somebody it's, it's, wrote it. It's so important. Somebody, I tell you, somebody said, I remember somebody said, when you're driving across the Bay Bridge, you know, this thing's got to leap out at you from its little position down there. And we sort of said, well, okay, but we're not sure really what, you know, what the city of San Francisco is going to allow us to do. And, you know, that's a whole other uh, subject, but it was a, you know, there, I guess the point is there was really no, there were really very few examples to sort of go after. I mean, it's not like we could look at a lot of these other deals that had done uh, to, to learn something from them. We were trying to figure out how to privately finance a ballpark. We, we needed a, 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 a big enough company who could, who could, we weren't worried about the financial part of this. Uh, and we had to justify to them why it was worth that investment. And oh, by the way, we needed like, as I recall, we needed like a big chunk of that money up front. Yeah, you needed it so, guaranteed. <clears throat> you needed it guaranteed. We needed yeah. it guaranteed. And then, and then, so then you get into, I mean, the, I remember the term sheet for this thing being about three pages, but the contract being about three feet thick right. because it oh. was, it was turned out to be a real, it was a real estate. Yeah. Deal, they, really. they sent me the term sheet. It was pretty funny. Anyway, <laughs> they, they, they sent me the term sheet. They're like, yeah, the, the, we've agreed. And they sent me the term sheet. And I was like, okay, I sent them back like three pages of questions, but, but okay. To go back to Jake's question, and, and this is very illustrative of, I have literally two rules of negotiation that I have discerned from watching all of this and participating in all of this over now 40 plus years. And they are very simple rules with lots of ways you can go with them, lots of arms and legs. Number one, be consistent, know what you want. So you just heard Pat there, he's very clear on what they wanted. And when you have a client who's very clear on what they want, cash up front, uh, a long-term commitment, okay? Very clear, 
it's so helpful for the lawyer. But you've got to you've got to get your client there. A lot of clients aren't there. That's number one. Number two, and this is going to sound rude, but it's not meant as rude. It's just easy to retain. Shut up and listen. And what the shut up means is allow silence. What happens is people feel compelled to fill silence. They hate it. They cannot help themselves. And they will tell you more and more and more <laughs> than you asked if you just shut up. Well, it's a, it's a first law in sales. I mean, once you make your pitch, the first person to utter a word after that is is in the weak position. They're they're they're, <laughs> they're not. You know, you make your you, yeah. You make down. your point. You make your pitch, and then you just shut up. It's that's one of the first rules in sales. But I think also, I think that looking back on it too, maybe I think the thing that that you did really well is you took a company, a a, a, a company that was trying to figure out number one why they were doing this. They knew that the giants were important and they they were a big community asset. But how does a telecommunications company, how do they, how do they get their arms right. around this? How do what they justify it? this to their shareholders? Yeah. What yeah. is it? How do you define it? What is it? And so we sort of, you know, together sort of invented some reasons why this thing made yeah. sense. No, absolutely. Uh, and, and by the way, um, that, that, that's sort of a formulation that you just stated, Pat, where not everybody's on board. Maybe one person's on board. Maybe a lot more people need to be brought on board or whatever. That happens in every deal I do. It could be because, let's say, in a TV rights deal, it could be, no, the term's too long. We don't know what might happen over time. And the other guy's like, yeah, but look at what they're going to put up front and they're committing to this. You know, there's a constant need to work with your client to figure out why are they doing this? And you would be amazed how many times I ask a client, why are you doing this? And they don't have an answer. And that's when I have to shut up. <laughs> it's one of the beauty. And then listen they don't and get one they eventually, have, yeah. but, th- but it could be a team effort. <laughs> Well, one of the great things about about this, this is also one of the great things about sports because, you know, this is not like any this is not like an international real estate deal or that could be a hundred times bigger. Sports has that magic attached to it, that visibility attached to it. That's sort of if you're a buyer or a seller, your task is to figure out a way to define it and get what it is that you need to get, and that's. If you walk away at the end and you sort of satisfied that, then it's a good deal. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and, and the one thing I have to say, though, is that this has become a lot more sophisticated, a lot, lot more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we did have in our agreement uh, name change language and we did we did address it fairly well. Uh, actually, I think we mm-hmm. addressed it comprehensively such that it was workable for everyone. But it's that there's kind of now a checklist that anyone who does these deals will have. Any lawyer, they they know exactly what needs to be addressed. Like, um, 
what, what's the quality? I mean, and we address this in our deal of the events in the venue. I mean, you're, you're buying this naming rights and you're selling it on the assumption that the giants are going to be playing there at a minimum. So there's got to be various sort of uh, there's some thought that's given to what does this mean to both parties and what happens if situation we're in right now, no one's playing in there. Is there an adjustment to the to the payments? Is there what do we do? What does it mean? So all of these things have to I be think addressed. It, and you know, we we, we we were talking earlier. I met, I've mentioned the famous you know force majeure uh, type of a clause that every agreement has, and you know lawyers on both sides have sort of figured it all out. Nobody wants to talk about it, but we know that it's got to be in there, and. Um, Right now, you think about the force majeure contract in every major relationship contract in sports. Um, you know, some of them address it. A lot of them probably don't. Uh, you could probably argue both sides. But I think what, what happens in that situation is you sort of have to, I think, you have to have, and if it's not, you have to have reasonable people on both sides sort of sit down and say, okay, what, what do we want to have happen here? Do, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, hey, I'm glad I'm not, uh, I'm not dealing with this now, and and maybe you probably are dealing with it in some in some situations. But it's a um, uh, you know the, the relationship between buyers and sellers uh, is certainly I'm not say it's going to change, but certainly elements of it are going to change uh, because of what's going on right now. So you know it's interesting because I'm talking to you guys, and you're not lawyers, and so we we don't want to have a debate about what the clauses mean and all that. But what I'll tell you is most of my clients, no, that's not fair. A lot of my clients are approaching this situation as a relationship issue because they're in long-term deals and they want to say, okay, how is this going to work for us? So, so there's two parts. The clients are looking internally. What, what is it that we now in this new world that we anticipate being in for a while what is our, how it's affecting our business? What does it mean for us? What do we need to do as a business to adapt to this? And then they go to their partners and they say, okay, so now in this new world that we're in, this is what it means to me. What does it mean to you? I, I, that's a very different situation than I, I had this one case. So there was a force measure provision the ice capades, I swear this is a true story. The ice capades were supposed to be performing on some Caribbean island. I don't remember which one. They, they send their costumes ahead. There's a hurricane and the costumes are literally destroyed. So now they've sold tickets. <laughs> they don't have any costumes. <laughs> I'm sure the venue didn't work either, but it was mainly, you know, who's on the hook for what? The guy who sold the tickets, what does he have to do? Does he have to refund the tickets? How does the ice capades get their costumes back? Who was responsible for that building? Why did the building go down? You know, on and on and on. These things can take years to resolve with insurance adjusters, all of those kinds of things. That's not the situation that we are in right now because we're all in it. Right. So... What, what's your, as you look towards the future, what are like the one or two things that you're 
assuming or thinking that people are going to have to pay more attention to not that they weren't paying attention to details right but what's what's that extra thought or perspective that people go huh wait let me think about that again well so this is this is one of my pet peeves and it's not from this particular um situation but this one will make it easier you get with clients to a point called deal fatigue I call it deal fatigue, where the client wants to know, what do I have to do? What's the money? Don't bother me with this other stuff. (laughs) And the force measure provisions generally, they'll say, if there's a force measure, neither one of us is in default. Okay, you went there. That's good. What that means is, let's take the ice capades example. Nobody's in default. The hurricane wasn't our fault. Okay, but who's paying for my costumes? And who's refunding the ticket money? So you have to take those clauses that are in the agreement and go one step further and fight about it now or understand that you may, and, you know, today we're learning, likely will have to fight about it later. So that's that's the the sort of compromise is because what happens is the lawyer is not usually the decision maker. The lawyer can recommend a clause that says, if there's a force measure and it's nobody's fault, um, I'm the team, I still want to be paid. Okay? So then the sponsor says, well, I mean, why? That's not really fair. I'm not getting my benefits. So now those two go back and forth. It's the business people who eventually go, okay, Cave, we're not going to say what happens. Yeah. So... But it's just getting focus on these little niggly, what people call corner cases, and they don't want to address them. Clients don't. Well, it's, 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 it's a tricky world and that's why you got to go to a lot more years of school than, (laughs) uh, than Pat and I did, but, uh, you know, uh, who knows, you know, maybe law school is in my future. I don't know. Um, I'll just talk to my grandpa was a lawyer. We'll say that's good enough. It's, it runs in the family, but, um, you know, Pat, uh, any last words as we come Well, I, you know, episode? I think that from listening to Mady, you can, you, you get a feel for, you know, the kind of, the kind of person that she is, but also the way that she's advised her clients. I, th- I would just say, I just have to, aside from thanking her from com- for coming on, I would just have to say, you know, if you're a, I'll, maybe we'll answer. I'll, I'll ask you a question, and we can see what your answer is. Is that we're going through something now that was never sort of contemplated? Um, you know, I don't think anything like it was contemplated. Um, if you were advising your client, um, and you could be on either side of the table, on sort of what kind of an attitude they have to have going into this, what would you say to them? Going into our brave new future. Well, the brave new future is to coming up with some sort of a, of a sort of a, not a resolution, but, but I guess a, a resolution to, none of us contemplated what was going on right now. So how do you advise your client um, as to um, what they should be doing now? So what I am giving this advice, I, first of all, we're looking at insurance policies, which is where the definition of pandemic, epidemic, and all that stuff comes into play in a big way. Secondly, 
I'm telling them, you've got to keep track. You've got to become knowledgeable. You've got to understand about what the possibilities are. Run scenarios. Know when you're going to pull the plug. And then, and then the lawyers get involved. Because what does pull the plug mean? <laughs> I know. It's not <laughs> well, funny, though. It's actually scary. No, no. But... Oh, but no lawyer is going to say to a client, oh, I have I have the perfect answer for you because this is business. This is the real world. These people are working together yesterday and will be tomorrow. And even mm -hmm. if they aren't working with each other, they have sort of a marketplace in which they all are working. Why well, didn't they have, you know, they have reputations and their business has has reputations uh, to protect and also as individuals they too so yes um i think you know that's that's just and i you know we're going to bring this thing to a close but maybe it's fantastic conversation i mean i i all, all of a sudden can see we could take other pieces of uh, sports law and and go off and and talk about them and uh and just thanks for taking oh, the time my pleasure. Uh, you've been at this a long time and and you uh you know it's Listening to you when you you talk about if if and I'll, this is not meant to be rude, but if if sometimes lawyers get a bad reputation, um, in listening to you, I think you've restored, <laughs> you know why 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 it's it's good to have somebody with experience, but also with just some basic judgment, um, and that's what you've got, and that's why you've been doing this for. Almost, you said 40 years. That I know, it right, can't be right, but, but hey, uh, maybe my math is off. Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Jake. <laughs>